meditation because from reading your sheets I saw that practically everyone has meditated. So we want to improve that, I'm sure. But that's not all what we're going to do in those days that we're together here. Meditation is one part of the whole of the practice. It's essential, it's um, basic, fundamental, and can't be left out, but it isn't all of it. It's often thought that it is all of it. People say quite often they're practicing and by that they mean that they're sitting on a pillow with crossed legs like we're doing just now. But that's not it. That's one part of practice. The Buddhist teaching consists of many different um, avenues but primarily of three fundamental and primary steps and teachings which have to be used in conjunction with each other. And in Pali they're called Sila, Samadhi and Panya. Sila is often translated as virtue. I prefer the word purity. Samadhi is concentration, meditation. It's nothing fancy. It's a concentrated meditation. The word is also very often misunderstood and given some connotation which it doesn't really have. It means concentration or meditation. And the third one is insight. So we have three aspects, three parts, purity, meditation, and insight. Now, with that, we can also translate the word samadhi with serenity. But serenity as it is achieved in meditation, not as we maybe have it sometimes when absolutely nothing is going wrong for five minutes. That's not meant by that. It's a serenity of meditation. So we have all these three and we need to practice all three. Obviously, these are lifetime practices and not seven-day practices. The only thing that we can hope to achieve in a seven-day course is a renewal of effort and energy, a renewal of commitment, possibly a new faith in what one is doing, and maybe some new thought triggers which help one to keep on the path. It's a lifetime commitment. And if one meditates properly, which means daily and eventually to the point where there is real concentration, one's life, one's inner life, has to change. There's no way it can't. So that commitment to the meditation has to be understood 
that it will bring with it a change of oneself. It's not going to be, if one really commits oneself to this practice, it's not going to be an addition to what one has anyway or an addition to what one is already or knows already and can do already and just having a little easier, a little nicer, a little better. It's none of that. It's a change. It's a vital and transforming change. Meditation must bring transformation. And if there is a certain hesitancy in one's mind, and that wouldn't be surprising because one doesn't know what one's going to be transformed into, then meditation won't work. And that's why it very often doesn't work. There are so many reasons why it doesn't work. This is one of them. Meditation has to have the complete commitment of the person, which means that the mind is willing to give itself totally to what it's doing without holding anything back. Not holding anything back like, am I going to get concentrated? Is this the right path? Maybe I should have gone somewhere else. This is too uncomfortable. Maybe I should come back later when I feel better, maybe in a year or two. Nothing like that. It has to be a total commitment. Then it works. In fact, one could say it's guaranteed to work. And if that isn't there, the total commitment, one could actually say it's guaranteed not to work. And that is a personal choice. Nobody can make that for another person. We all have to make that choice for ourselves. One of the things that will help us to make that choice is if we have a very determined and honest look at all the things that are part of our life and whether they are totally fulfilling. And if there is any doubt about the fact that they are totally fulfilling, it can help one to have complete confidence and faith that there ought to be something else. Because this personal commitment, total commitment, means that there is also total confidence. Not so easy, because one doesn't know exactly what one is having confidence in. One may have looked at it here and there and everywhere and seen a bit of this and seen a bit of that. But the totality of the Buddha's teaching, as it is embedded in the Pali Canon, which is the fundamental teaching as we know it from Siddhartha Gautama, who is the Buddha that we're referring to, contains a completeness of a personal transformation from the mundane to the super-mundane. And only that is the reason for meditation. Everything else is sort of dabbling in it, which is fine. People dabble in all sorts of things. But we have to make sure that we know the difference. Are we dabbling or do we really want a complete transformation? Meditation works when it becomes concentrated to the point where the mind stops throwing up its own ideas. Now, obviously, we have to have a pathway to get there. 
It's not something that we can just sit down here, having come from our homes and sitting down here and then saying, all right, now I'm going to stop thinking and I'm going to meditate. That doesn't happen that way. And Buddha gave us a number of <coughs> necessary necessary path and necessary aspects which we have to fulfill so that this can actually happen. And two of those aspects we, will, we are providing for you, but the others you have to provide for yourself. The first aspect which we are providing for you, and luckily we are able to provide that in a very good way, is the physical base. That's point number one in all the necessary ways and means to make meditation work. The physical base means that we have a quiet place, that we have um, decent weather. We're even able to provide that for you, which, of course, there's no guarantee for that. And also the kind of food which does not have any detrimental effects on the body. Another physical base is posture. Now we can talk about posture, we can talk about using the body, but what it necessarily means is also that we don't have too many physical difficulties, which is part of the physical base necessary for meditation. Now, obviously, what we're providing there are just, it's just the room, and everybody has to find a way of being able to sit with the least discomfort. I'm going to talk about that in a moment, about the sitting and the least discomfort which is possible. The other thing which we can provide is the association with like-minded people. The Buddha considered that a prerequisite, just like the physical base, a prerequisite for meditation, to be together with those people who also want to meditate. Now that obviously is provided just through the uh, naturalness of coming together in a meditation course. We call it the group energy. The Buddha called it the association with people who want to meditate. It's the same thing. It's extremely helpful. He also advised actually if we mean it seriously, if we mean meditation seriously, not to be together with those who don't meditate because we'll be sidetracked over and over again. <clears throat> it's very difficult to keep oneself going in an environment which is not geared towards that what one wants to do on this path. So we have provided the first two aspects. The physical environment, the food, the weather, the... Uh, quietness of the surroundings, and the association with like-minded people. Now, the rest is all up to you, every bit of it. I usually call the Buddhist teaching a do-it-yourself job, and that's all it is. We can have the Buddha's words, Buddha Vachana, they are available to us in the translations of many of our Western languages, particularly in English, and we can have the interpretations, but the work has to be done by each person. <coughs> the first thing that's necessary for meditation is 
a gladdening of the mind. It's impossible to meditate successfully if the mind is upset. If there's anger, worry, fear, dislike, hate, any of these negative states in the mind, that's all the mind knows. It can try and try and try, but it will never do it. It will have to make up a strong determination to drop negativities. Now, in order to do that, we have, of course, crutches. We gladden the mind through having joyfulness that we are able to do this, that we have this opportunity to practice together, that we have this quite rare opportunity to be together with the Buddha's words as our guidance. <coughs> Although there are 500 million Buddhists in the world today, roughly speaking, it is still difficult for us, particularly in the West, to have that opportunity to hear the true teaching of the Buddha. There isn't that much of it around. So we are very fortunate. Now that is one thought we can have in mind. The other thing is that we're fortunate about is that we have been able to let go of our daily occupations, duties, responsibilities and come here and let the world be out there at least physically. Maybe not yet in the mind, but physically the world's out there and we're in here which is a great cause for rejoicing. Not everybody can do that. Many, many people cannot afford to do it. They haven't got the time, nor do they have the opportunities. More people in the world do not have that opportunity. So it's a rare boon and benefit. And the mind should, at the beginning of each meditation, remember that so that joy can arise in the mind gladdening the mind so that there is a feeling of really being in the right spot at the right time. The mind is very fragile. It can do many things and therefore we have to keep it guided where we want it. The next step that's necessary for meditation is overcoming the inactivity of the mind. Now, we all have that problem. It's not a personal problem. These are all universal problems. The inactivity of the mind means that the mind does not want to occupy itself with things which are of great depth and profundity. It wants to stay on the surface. It will, you know, that uh, very common expression. Oh, what did you talk about? The weather. That's the inactivity of the mind. We have much greater concerns than those things that we usually talk about. And when the mind starts chattering, as it does in meditation, it will chatter about those things which are on the surface. And that means that it doesn't really want to go into the depth because that is far more of a job, far more difficult 
to see into one's own depth than just the surface where everything is either liked or disliked, mine or yours, where it's either yesterday or tomorrow, where I'm going to have it or going to get rid of it. This is the kind of thinking that we're used to. So to overcome that, we have to remember that with every thought, we're making karma. Every single thought, we're making karma. I'm assuming that the word karma has entered into the English language in such a way that I don't have to get into a translation of it. But we'll certainly talk about that aspect of the teaching. Every single thought, making karma, should therefore be a warning to us that when we just have that chattering mind, that mind that does not want to really get concentrated, the mind that isn't giving its best to the practice, we're not making good karma. But every time that we're trying, really trying to become concentrated, we are making good karma because it's the intention that counts. Now, remembering that will help us. Will help us to keep the mind in place. It's always trying to run off until we become practiced enough so that it can just stay there where we want it. That takes a little while for most people. So the first thing is joy in the mind for the wonderful opportunity we have. And the second is remembering that when we try to become concentrated, we are making good karma. When we are allowing the mind to go wherever it wants, it's not good karma. And we are the only ones that can make our own karma. And especially here, where we have come together in a concentrated situation, in an intensive practice, making karma is of the greatest importance. Because karma and its resultants, that's what our life is all about. We may not notice it, but that's what it's all about. The next step that everyone has to do for themselves is overcoming negligence, which is our third hindrance, usually called sloth and torpor. It's a universal problem. It's not a problem which is personal, it's not something that one needs to feel is blameworthy. Some people have less of it than others. But it's a negligent mind which becomes sort of foggy and woozy and doesn't pay attention properly. It happens in daily life. We don't know what the neighbor has said because we haven't paid attention. We don't know what's going on with other people. We're not paying attention. We very often don't know what's going on with ourselves because we're not paying attention. But in meditation, we don't know the meditation subject because we're not paying attention. The mind may not, we're not falling asleep like we do in bed, but the mind is asleep because it's not properly attentive. Every time we are properly attentive to the meditation subject, we're overcoming our third hindrance, sloth and torpor. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor to being in prison with the mind. When the mind doesn't know what's going on, there's nothing it can do about a transformation, about insight, 
about serenity. It's just sort of half asleep. It's foggy, it's drowsy, it's slothful, it's disinterested, it cannot get a grip on itself, and therefore, of course, it cannot go into depth. It has to stay on the surface because that's where it is. It cannot have any, it does not have the quality of being able to see into any depth. So this is a very important aspect of even the very beginning of meditation. Because when one first starts in a course like this, usually one has still brought with one all the thoughts from out there. So we are counteracting the hindrance of our slothful mind every time we put attention on the meditation subject. So we have automatic purification through that. When we remember to make good karma by keeping our mind in place, we have automatic purification. When we gladden the mind through joy, this is automatic purification. Purification is the essence of the path which leads to transformation. The next thing that we need for the meditation practice is intentness, being intent, not getting sidetracked, not allowing the mind to think of all the other things that one could be doing at this time, not allowing the mind to go off on tangents every time it does to bring it back. Now that means in the meditation and outside of the meditation. Now obviously we're not going to sit here all day in this hall. We're going to be times when we do walking meditation, there'll be times when we eat, there'll be times when we bathe, there'll be times when we rest. These are all opportunities for the mind to go off on tangents and have dreams and imaginations, resentments, angers, dislikes, worries, anything it pleases. All the things that we always do. Now, if we really want to practice well and have a meditation practice which brings the kind of results that transform our viewpoints, that transform our inner being, we have to keep the mind in place outside of the meditation time also. Bring it back to what we're doing. Now that means mindfulness. Now I'm going to speak about mindfulness in more detail, but just enough now to say that when we're not sitting in meditation, mindfulness is our most important quality of the mind that we need to practice and that will keep us alert enough outside of the meditation so that we can actually meditate when we sit down again. The first aspect of mindfulness which I'm going to mention and which is all what I'm going to mention tonight will be mindfulness of the body. It is so important and actually so obvious that it's so often overlooked. Mindfulness of the body means two things mindfulness of the movements and the actions. I'm dividing it into two because many of our movements are more or less automatic. 
but some of our actions have to be done with deliberation. So we watch both. Now, there are more movements that are automatic. <clears throat> we're walking, we're sitting down, we're opening doors, we're putting on shoes, we're going to get some food, we're putting food on the plate, we're eating, we're washing, we're dressing, we're undressing, we're getting up in the morning, we're lying down in the, in the evening. There are thousands of physical actions. If we can keep our mind <coughs> occupied with the physical action, it will have no opportunity to become worried, distraught, <coughs> distracted, disliking, angry, fearful, it has no opportunity to become less than concentrated. In fact, the Buddha said, if one were to practice mindfulness for seven years, one would undoubtedly become enlightened. And then he said, nay, even for six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, nay, even for... 11 months, 10 months, 9 months, 8 months, 7 months, 6 months, 5 months, 4 months, 3 months, 2 months, 1 month, nay, even for 7 days. If one were to practice mindfulness, one would undoubtedly become enlightened. You've got 7 days. But it unfortunately means practicing mindfulness constantly. And that is where the rub comes in. So whether one becomes enlightened or not is not the point at this point in time, but I told you this story just to um, point out how important it is. Mindfulness of the body should be the easiest. It isn't, but it should be, because we can see the body, we can touch it, we use it constantly, and we're also dreadfully identified with it, and in most cases, terribly fond of it. So to be mindful of the body should prevent no difficulty, but it does, unfortunately, because the mind wants to go off on its own tangents. So you have to just bring it back, that's all. It goes off, so one brings it back. Mindfulness of the body as one's practice outside of the meditation hall is the one way of gaining access to the concentrated meditation in the meditation hall. It has also inside aspects, but at this point in time, I'll just talk about the fact that it brings together the mind in a concentrated state. I'll talk about some other aspects of mindfulness at another time. It's impossible to give you all this information <coughs> in one sitting because not only much too lengthy but also you couldn't possibly remember it and uh, it wouldn't have do any good so we'll stick to mindfulness of the body at this time the intention the intentness and the intention do I really want to meditate or do I just want to find out what other people do and say do I want to compare teachers oh, that's a very popular pastime Please don't. It brings nothing. It brings absolutely no benefits. 
It can only bring the mind into a distracted state. That's all. Or do I really want to have that ability to get in touch with my own inner purity so that I'll find out what I am really within myself? What is it that I have that underlying notion that there's something other than what comes out on the outside. To get in touch with that, we'll have to stop talking. We'll have to do it. To stop talking means two things. The first one is obvious. We're going to have noble silence. We're not going to talk to each other. You can ask as many questions as you wish here in the hall. Everybody has an opportunity to have personal <coughs> interviews where we discuss things but not talking to each other. It's a disturbance for the other person, but it's mainly a disturbance for you. The more input there is into the mind, the less the mind can be quiet. And the other not talking is, of course, a chattering of one's own mind. Now that takes a bit of doing. It doesn't just stop. So we're going to use also some methods and this is the beauty of the Buddha's teaching. He gives us methods. If we use the methods properly, without any doubt, without any holding back, without any personal opinion about them, and that's the main thing, no personal opinion about the method, but just doing it, it's guaranteed to work. As long as I have personal opinions about it, I've read it differently somewhere else. I've heard it differently from my friends. I know better anyway, or I don't know whether this will work, so why should I try? All these personal opinions are going to stop the meditation right then and there, and often does, many times. There are those who can give themselves, give themselves to what they're doing, and when they do that, they get the result. If we don't do something wholeheartedly, what do we get? Half-hearted results. That's all we can expect. But if we do something wholeheartedly, with our whole being, holding back nothing, just being that what we're doing, obviously we get wholehearted results. There's no other way of doing it. So when this is the last of the steps that I'm going to mention that the Buddha spoke about as the... Um, prerequisites for meditation and he calls it restraining and regulating the mind now there is also that idea abroad that one should just allow the mind to do what it wants and just watch it thinking and going away the thought going away again arising and ceasing and coming and going well it's not what the Buddha taught because that's what we do all day long the thought comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And not every time do we actually react to it because we couldn't. We have far too many of them. So some of them just come and go. In meditation, we have to make a concentrated effort to let the mind subside with its thinking and start experiencing. So that means restraining and regulating. And the restraint of the mind comes through the meditation subject. We use, we're going to use the breath 
as a meditation subject, at least to start with. It's the most traditional, it's the most common, and it is almost, almost always useful for people. There are some who can't do anything with it. That's all right. The Buddha taught 40 different methods. So we have another 39 that we could use. But I can't now, at this point in time, tell you about 39 methods. You wouldn't know what to do. I mean, in the end, you'd be so confused you couldn't possibly meditate. So we'll just have one method. We'll have five different ways of using it, that one method. And then, as it goes, comes out in the personal interviews, if somebody has absolutely no way of dealing with the breath, we'll use something else. We will also, of course, in the class here in the group, uh, use other methods also. But we'll start with the breath as a meditation subject. Now that restrains the mind from doing what it likes. What it really likes is to have some kind of entertainment. It likes to think about things which are entertaining, something that is nice in the future, that one could possibly um, obtain in the future, or something that is nice in the past. And then, of course, some minds start thinking about some of the things that are terrible in the past. So the mind has a sort of um, inner dialogue going on. And this inner dialogue is uh, very noticeable in meditation. It's not so noticeable in our daily living, because in our daily living, we are obligated to think, because there are certain things we've got to think about. So when that inner dialogue starts, we don't even know the difference anymore. It's all the same thing. It's all shattering in there. Sometimes it has to think because it's got to attend to its duties, and other times it's just shattering away with that inner dialogue. Here, in the meditation, this is becoming quite clear, because there's nothing to do except watch the breath. So we know immediately that we're having an inner dialogue. We don't have to be confused about, am I supposed to think this? Did I really have some business with this? Although this also happens, because some thought comes up which appears to be so important. And then the mind thinks, now this I'm going to have to investigate first. I first have to find out what this is all about. Now how did this come about? Probably because my mother or my father or my husband or my wife or whatever. It's not important enough. At this point in time, what we're trying to do is get the mind to stop doing all that and get inside and be aware and experiential. The spiritual path is a path of experience. It's not a path of thinking. But it's a path of the understood experience. And these are the two aspects that we are going to discuss all the time. The experience is when the mind becomes quiet. And the understanding of that is knowing what actually happened. And that's the insight. So the first thing that happens is the serenity, and the second thing that happens is the insight. But it's without the serenity, the insight is a hope and a prayer. Because if you think a moment about, let's say, an ocean, where the waves are going high, we can't look into the depth of the ocean. We can't see the... Um, ground at all. All we see are the waves. It's impossible because everything is moving. So there's no way to get into the depth of it. When those waves subside, 
and the ocean becomes quiet and there's nothing but a very still water we can look into the depths and see what's at the bottom the same with our mind as long as the waves of thinking are there what do we see the waves of thinking we may think that we are thinking something very profound but we're thinking it we're not seeing it and that's the whole difference that's why first serenity and then comes the insight now of course there are grades of serenity there are grades of insight obviously the two help each other but the thinking process as such which has nothing but the logical aspect to it is not enough on a spiritual path logic does not get us to a transformation with logic we don't transform what we actually experience when the mind becomes quiet is we experience feelings and then we will know that that's how we live with feelings and if we don't get at them we're always going to stand outside and be a spectator it's the feelings that make us the individual human beings that we are and as we become aware of them within us we will also see that there are certain ones which are of great benefit and others which we need to drop so the meditation subject restrains the mind from its usual games that it plays now obviously it's not going to restrain it perfectly it restrains it at the moment when we're paying attention to the subject which is fine every time we do we make good karma and every time we do we also purify because we can't think any negative thought at that time so because we can't we have a purification moment one second of concentration is one second of purification the uh, other thing that we're going to do is we're going to regulate the mind we're not going to take it for granted anymore <coughs> now most people in the world who have particularly who do not meditate at all take their mind for granted it thinks so that must be right what it's thinking and it they take it for granted that the mind keeps thinking all the time unless it's falling asleep and starts dreaming but that's totally unnecessary and not only is it unnecessary it's very detrimental it's being completely overworked and that's where our wonderful stress comes from we're overworking the one tool in the whole universe that could bring us joy beauty peace freedom liberation all those things that we all really would like to have and we're overworking it with thinking all the time so that there is not a chance of any of that arising so what we have to understand when we want to regulate the mind is that every time a thought arises or as many times as we can manage we're going to try and label that in the beginning as in the beginning as a first step towards getting to know our mind content our um, usual way of using our mind because we will see that it is the same thing over and over again although it comes in different facets it's the same thing and the labeling means that we're becoming aware of the mind content and as we label we will also see 
that the one who is observing, namely labeling, will no longer be the thinker and the thought breaks down completely. It disappears immediately. Unfortunately, if one hasn't practiced for very long yet, a new one arises almost immediately. But never mind that. That's what we're here for, to stop that process from an old one passing away and a new one arising immediately. If we label them, we're going to use labels like future, past, not necessary, anger, dislike, worry, anything that comes up. One of the labels, which will be suitable many, many times, but you need a certain personal honesty for that, is nonsense. A lot of nonsense arises. They're not even full thoughts. They're just fragments quite often. <coughs> they mean nothing. And they just come up because the mind just doesn't want to be quiet because it hasn't had that uh, practice yet. It's perfectly all right to call it nonsense. Nobody else knows about it. It's quite all right. You can call it anything you like. The first label that comes to mind is the right one. Don't try to find the correct label because it's a new thinking process again. Just take the one that has come. And recognize how, with that labeling, the thought disappears because you're now the observer, no longer the thinker. And how you can, at that moment, <clears throat> actually substitute the thought with the attention on the breath again. This is an extremely important learning situation which nobody should um, leave out, at least in the beginning. If the mind then is able to stay with the breath and get concentrated, we don't need to do that anymore. But at the very beginning, it's a very important learning process. The importance lies in the fact that we're thinking all day long. And if we learn to label, we will recognize the fact when our thoughts become unwholesome detrimental to our own and other people's well-being. And at that moment, learn to substitute with a wholesome thought, the same as we substitute with the breath, attention on the breath. If we learn that and nothing else, we've taken a big step on the spiritual path. Because everything we do or say depends upon our thinking process. Nothing can happen without our thought. So if we become aware of the content of the thoughts in the meditation, we carry that over into daily life almost automatically. Anyone who's done labeling in meditation carries that over into daily life because it's an automatic process. And as we see our detrimental thoughts, our negative thoughts, our thoughts of anger and dislike, we can recognize how they hurt us ourselves and how they hurt other people and we won't continue. And if we recognize the fact that we are making karma with our thinking, we certainly won't continue. That in itself is already uh, one of the very important aspects called the four supreme efforts, part of 37 factors of enlightenment, and all it needs is labeling. Now, obviously, in the meditation, if one isn't very practiced yet, there'll be many, many thoughts and you won't be able to label all of them. Try to label as many as you can. It doesn't matter. Whatever you labeled, that is the one you knew. 
And if you find one thing happening, which is also possible, that the same thought keeps on arising over and over again because you're particularly angry at one particular person or particularly worried about one particular thing or whatever it may be, if you see that arising again and again and making it impossible to meditate, in other words, impossible to stay on the meditation subject, then it's necessary to investigate. Then it's no longer uh, useful to try and substitute with attention on the breath if you've tried it 10 or 15 times and it just won't work. Then you need to investigate. The investigation means that you have a look at that thought and find out why am I thinking that. And then the answer becomes the next question. And you question it and question it until eventually you may see something entirely new, which has to do, it must be concerned with yourself and not with the trigger that brought out the thought. The trigger is nothing but a trigger. It has nothing to do with our own personal insights. <coughs> so if the substitution with the meditation subject does not work because the thought is so predominant and so incisive, then we need to investigate. And if the investigation brings about an insight into oneself, it was successful. If it only brings out the insight that there is... A now, the attention on the breath. I'd like to give you several options on how to watch the breath. Because if you just watch the breath at the nostrils, unless you're very practiced, years and years of concentration, it is the most difficult one and not advisable to start with. And I'm going to repeat that because in every course I give, and I've been doing this for 18 years, people do not hear that. Why? I don't know. And still start out with putting their attention just at the nostril where the breath goes in and out. It's the most difficult thing to do. It's perfectly all right to do it after you've been here a while and the concentration has come together, but it is not useful to start out with that unless you're so practiced that you have no problem with it at all. No problem means you can stay on it and the thoughts stay out there. They're not bothering or distracting. If that is the case, certainly stay with the breath at the nostrils and watch it go in and out. But if that is not the case, and particularly the very first evening, please pick one of the following options which I'm going to give you and use that now and tomorrow morning. And then when we come together again uh, after the, uh, at 9.30 in the morning and that particular method didn't work so well, try another one. It's the mind, it's not the method. But it's also true that some methods are more favorable for some people and some for others. If anyone has a sinus condition at this particular moment, 
asthma or a cold, don't use the nostrils. If anyone has that, then the nostrils will not work very well. Then it will be better to use the rise and fall of the abdomen. If you don't have any of those problems, no sinus, no asthma, no cold, then please, we use the breath at the, at the nostrils, but not only that. The first possibility is counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No further than ten. Always start again with one after you've come to ten. But that's only for those people who really like numbers. And there are people that like numbers. Even those that don't like numbers can't understand that. There are some that do, so please use that counting. You can let go of it as soon as you find that the mind has really come together and the thinking has stopped. But until then, use the counting. If you don't like numbers, use a word. You can use the word buddho. Bud on the in-breath, ho on the out-breath. It means to the Buddha. You're giving your breath to the Buddha, if you like. You're remembering the Buddha. The Buddha as the enlightenment principle, not as a historical person that doesn't work in meditation, <coughs> but as an enlightenment principle, at that which has absolutely no suffering anymore. It's useful. If you don't like that, use the word like love, love and peace. For instance, you can use love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath, or just one of them, whichever you choose. If you don't like any of those words, make up your own. Words are just words. In fact, words are concepts. And they make things static. That's why they can never be the absolute truth. But unfortunately, it's all we have to communicate with. But the word with the breath helps the mind to be a little more interested. So if you use, for instance, the word peace, and you use the in-breath and think the word peace. At the same time, the mind might be thinking, peaceful, peaceful. Maybe even the word peace on the in-breath and full on the out-breath. So it has a kind of connotation, the word, that helps one to achieve that what we're after, the non-thinking, the serenity, the tranquility. Or if you prefer the word love, or if you want to use both, that's fine too. More than two words is not advisable. The mind goes off on tangents. One is better than two, but if you want to use two, that's fine too. If you don't like numbers or words, and if you have a visual mind, use pictures. You can picture the breath as either a cloud or an ocean wave, whichever one you prefer. And imagine that this ocean wave, if as the breath comes into you and gets smaller, of course, as it comes in and then goes out again, gets bigger. It's a kind of rhythm attached to that, which is helpful for those people who have visual minds. There are many people who have visual minds. They see everything in pictures, and some people see everything even in technicolor pictures. That's fine. Make the wave beautiful. Make it a bright blue with silver lining or whatever. 
You can make it anything you want. Just stay with it. The only thing that matters is to stay on it. It doesn't matter whether it's an ocean wave or a cloud. You can make it anything you like. I'm only going to give you those two options because if I give you too many, you're going to sit there trying to figure out which one. So, please, one of those two. If you don't like any of those options yet, you can use sensation. The sensation of the breath at the nostrils is the wind of the breath that touches the nostrils. There is a feeling, a sensation, a physical sensation. As that happens, the breath goes in, there are other sensations. Up the nose, on the forehead, often in the back of the head, throat, even as far as the lungs, sometimes as far as the stomach. Don't search for them, just be aware of them as as your breath comes in and as the breath goes out. Some people are aware of the contraction of the lung when they breathe out and the expansion of the lung as they breathe in, that's fine. Any sensation will do. But helpful also is the fact that you're following it. Everything is designed to give the mind something to do because it wants to do something. It just doesn't want to sit there and watch the breath. It wants to do things. So all these things are designed to give it something useful to do, all designed in the same direction. And then there's another possibility as the fifth one, and that is watching beginning, middle, end of breath. Beginning, middle, end. And again, there's a beginning, middle, end. There's even noticeable for some people the slight pause which exists there. Um, That takes far more concentration than the other four, beginning, middle, end. You may be able to say one, two, three. You may be able to say beginning, middle, end. You may be able to say nothing, but you can watch these three parts of the breath. So you have counting, word, picture, sensation, beginning, middle, end. Pick one and stick to it. Don't alternate, like sitting there and trying one thing. Well, that doesn't work. That's no good. Take the next one. And by the time half an hour is over, you've tried five, all five of them three times. It doesn't work at all. Please use one and stay with it. And stay with it tomorrow morning also. And then by the time we come together again, at uh, 9.30 or after that, um, after the contemplation, change it to another one. If you find that the mind is totally concentrated by even tomorrow morning already and you don't need any of those crutches, drop it. But concentrated means no thinking, just being with the breath. So you have the breath, the attention on the breath, and you have the labeling for the thoughts which are distracting, which is a very important process of regulating the mind, of getting the mind to do what is wholesome, beneficial, helpful, which makes life so much easier. Life's a difficult proposition. We're all clear on that, I hope. But we can make it a little easier for ourselves. And all depends upon our thinking process. That it all depends on. There's nothing else except our thinking process. Nothing apart from that. So these are the two things. There's one other thing to say, and that is the sitting. 
It's part of the physical base, and therefore it's important. If you remember, it's the first step as a prerequisite for meditation. We should try and sit in a position which we think we can hold. Naturally, whatever it is, whichever way we want to sit, it doesn't matter which way you put your legs, they have to be in some way that you can keep them that way. Their back should be straight, not military straight, relaxed straight. Um, unless there is a back ailment, one should not lean against anything. The hands can be together in, in the lap, one on top of the other, or on the knees with a palm up or down, it doesn't matter. Whichever is convenient and comfortable for you. The eyes closed so that there's no visual input. If you are used to keeping your eyes just a tiny little bit open and down on the ground, that's fine. Especially if there is a great tendency to fall asleep. It's better to keep the eyes a little bit open, down on the ground without focusing. But the general rule is just to close them. For the serenity meditation, the closed eyes is the usual procedure. And then, after a while, there'll be discomfort. Now, this is something we really need to um, discuss because it's an important aspect. In fact, it becomes so important for some people that it overshadows the rest of everything. Um, So there'll be discomfort because of a sitting position which is unusual and different from usual. But that is not really the cause. Our body is not designed to be completely still until the mind becomes still. Even at night, on the most expensive mattress, we keep tossing and turning because the mind is not completely still. It's dreaming. So whether we lie on a most comfortable mattress or sit on the most uncomfortable zafu, it doesn't matter. The body has difficulty sitting still. When the mind becomes totally still, the body doesn't care anymore because it's not being pushed around by the mind. So what happens is that there be discomfort. The natural tendency is for the mind to react to that discomfort immediately and impulsively by telling the body to move. That we don't want to do. We don't want to have impulsive and uh, instinctive reaction. We want to know what we're doing. And that is the difference. It doesn't mean that we can't move. But it means that we know what we're doing. So what we actually want to do is become aware of the fact that there is an unpleasant feeling, that we're calling it painful, that we don't like it, and therefore want to get away from it, and therefore want to move and then have another realization that that's how we live our lives constantly, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional. It's an unpleasant feeling, so we want to get away from it. And then having seen all that, (coughs) we can actually substitute our attention from that unpleasant feeling to the breath. And the unpleasant feeling at that time is no longer available to us. Now, we may only be able to do that for a moment or two. And again and again, we may be able to do it two, three, four times and realize that we don't have to react to the unpleasant feeling 
in this mode of trying to get away from it. We can substitute with attention on something else until the mind says, oh, very interesting, oh, wonderful, that I can't sit that way. And when the mind says, I can't sit that way, then move. But slowly and carefully, gently, so as not to disturb yourself and your neighbor too much, with the understanding that you have just become a victim of your unpleasant feeling. We do this all day long, every day, without knowing it. Here we know it. That's the whole difference. We know what we're doing. But first, become aware of what's actually happening. There's touch contact, legs on the mat. From that, from every, uh, from every uh, sense contact comes a feeling, this one's unpleasant, we call it pain, I want to get away from it. That's my reaction. Knowing that, knowing that reaction is the most important thing we can learn from this discomfort in the sitting. Because this is how we live. We react with dislike to what is unpleasant in our opinion and we react with wanting to keep to what we think is pleasant. And doing that takes up all our time and our energy. And we can never win because it's a constant change. One time it's pleasant and one time it's unpleasant. I'm not saying not to move. People very often don't hear that either. I'm not saying not to move. I'm saying not to move impulsively, instinctively, but to first get back and realize what's actually happening, then taking the mind off the unpleasant feeling, putting it on the breath, doing, doing that once, twice, three times, whatever is possible, and then saying, okay, enough's enough, and then moving gently, carefully, and realizing I've given in to an unpleasant feeling. It's fine. It's recognition, no blame, change. We recognize what we're doing. We don't blame ourselves. And eventually, we're able to transform ourselves and change. So there's no blame attached to this. But it's an essential to recognize. So you have the meditation uh, subject with the method. You have the labeling. And you have the reaction to the discomfort. These are the three aspects of the meditation. Now, before we actually sit down and do a bit of meditation, what have I forgotten to tell you? What's unclear? What needs to be... Any questions at all? Yes. Well, um, at home is fine. Here it wouldn't be good. Because uh, what we would find is that other people would say, well, if she can lie down, why don't I lie down? I don't feel that good either. You know? And in the end, we're all lying down. <laughs> but at home, that's fine. And back problems, uh, if they're of a physical nature, uh, of course, very difficult. But sometimes you will find, uh, I don't know what it is in your case, but in some cases, back problems also have to do with um, uh, the mental-emotional makeup and do um, reduce when the meditation becomes better. <coughs> that's also possible, but I'm not saying that that's always the case. 
But if you have a back problem, use the wall as your support. Huh? Can you do that? No. Okay. Anything else? Yes. How do I feel about crying? Well, I don't feel about crying at all. But um, you mean in meditation or in daily life? Um, well, <laughs> if it's because of personal suffering, it needs to be investigated. If it's because of lack of energy, it's, um, it's a physical problem. It can be either. If it's an emotional problem, it needs to be investigated. If it's a physical problem, one's got to do something about it physically. It can be either way. It's certainly not helpful to the meditation. I mean, we can either cry or meditate. We can't do both at the same time. So it's not, not helpful. But if it's emotional, investigation will help. And it uh, can be very useful to use the meditation time for that, for that investigation. Why am I feeling like this? What's bringing it about? And then the answer is the next question. Because the world's so terrible. Well, why do I feel like that and why doesn't anybody else? Am I better or worse? What is it? Why am I reacting like that? You know what? I mean, I'm only making this up. So that kind of investigation is, uh, is, can be very useful. Anything else? Yes? When I use numbers uh, for meditation, I always visualize and picture the numbers too. And I don't seem to be able to do it one way or the other. I mean, I don't seem to be able to just use like pictures of the numbers mm. or just the numbers. It's always the mm. visual picture of the number comes up. No problem. That's fine. Yeah. No problem. As long as it helps you to stay with it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Is drowsiness your problem in standing up all right? Yes. Um, when, if drowsiness is a problem, there are several um, recommendations the Buddha has given. The first one is, uh, first, immediately open one's eyes. You see, the mind uh, that hasn't really become totally concentrated in meditation knows only one aspect of itself when it stops thinking and that's that one moment before falling asleep that's all it knows so when it actually has stopped thinking for that millisecond it also gets the idea oh bedtime okay <laughs> so it goes Ugh, drowsy so the first thing to do is open the eyes because we don't fall asleep usually with open eyes if that doesn't help to give oneself a pep talk this is a time to meditate I can sleep later in bed, and uh, I've come here for that purpose. Whatever one can think of as a pep talk, this is a good opportunity. I should take that opportunity and uh, really arouse the energy. Now, arousing energy is one of the recommendations the Buddha uses over and over again. So you can see that energy, mental energy, is not something that we are blessed with uh, just by nature. We have to arouse it. And we arouse it through that understanding of making good karma, of using that uh, time usefully. Now, if that still doesn't help, then moving the body so that there's more blood circulation, maybe the shoulders, and if that still doesn't help, stand up. Very few people fall asleep standing up. 
So use that uh, standing up also for meditation, and then when the mind is quite clear again, one can sit down again. One can do that quite, very quietly, so not to disturbing other people. It's a sort of like a last resort. Try the others first, opening eyes, looking, looking at the light, uh, giving oneself a pep talk, moving a little bit so that we have more blood circulation, and if nothing helps, standing up. Yes. Uh, yes, if you can listen and take notes at the same time, that's fine, no problem. But the um, the tapes will be all available. So I'm taking tapes of all the talks, and they'll all be available. Uh, we'll have the list out, and um, people can write down their names and everything. That will all be announced. But you can take notes; it's fine. It's, I have no objection, none whatsoever. Yes. Well, you you haven't coughed lately. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, if it happens in the meditation itself, it might be an idea to go outside and get over it, you know, because, I mean, nobody can meditate when people are coughing. But I also get a cough sometimes. So, uh, um, But when I'm talking, it's all right. It's okay. I think most of my tapes have a bit of cough on. <laughs> <laughs> So in the meditation, it might be an idea to, you know, quietly just tiptoe outside. So in order to start, first find a comfortable way to sit. Feel at ease about your sitting. Then have that joy in the mind about being able to do this. And remember the making of karma with your thoughts. Take a deep breath. Let it all come out. With all the stress and the tension, just breathe it out. And then pick the method that you have chosen and try to keep the mind on it. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now put your attention (coughs) on your innermost feeling, your heart, where it has love and appreciation, where you can recognize that the feelings for beauty and the lovingness come from that you expend towards flowers, beautiful sights, little animals, the people you love. Go to that spot.
where that feeling can be found and try to enlarge that. Fill yourself from head to toe with the love and the appreciation of the good and the beautiful that you can find in yourself. Feel the warmth of that love and the embrace of it. Now put your attention on the person sitting nearest you in this room and let that loving feeling, the warmth, the softness reach out to that person and fill him or her from head to toe with your loving feelings. And now reach out to everyone here. Let that loving feeling in your heart, the warmth and the care, reach out to each person here, filling everyone from head to toe with your love and embracing everyone with the warmth of your heart your caring concern. Now think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not, and let that warm, caring, loving heart reach out to them. Give them the gift of your heart.
Now think of those people who are closest to you, your nearest and dearest people, those that might be waiting for you at home. Let your heart go out to them. Fill them with your love. Surround them with your care and concern without expecting to get the same in return. Nothing of your friends. Let them arise in your mind's eye and fill them with the warmth and care from your heart. Embrace them with the depths of your friendship, not expecting that they give the same in return. Think of the people you meet in your everyday life, your neighbors at home, people you work with, people on the street, in the shops, in the offices, postmen, anywhere, any, anyone. Open your heart to them. Let them become really part of your life. Let the warmth and care from your heart reach out to them, filling them and embracing them with the best that you can give.
Now think of anyone in your life whom you find difficult to love, towards whom you might have resentment or anger, or if there is no such person, anyone towards whom you are totally indifferent. And realize that this is a blockage which hurts your own heart. Open your heart to that person too, giving him the warmth and care of love and compassion. Now let that warm, lovely feeling in your heart expand and extend outward and reach out first to people around here, the ones in these buildings and the ones in the houses around here. And recognize the more you can reach out and give of that warm and lovely feeling of love, the stronger it becomes in your heart. And then let it flow like a golden river that goes over its banks to people far and wide in the city of Santa Fe through the whole state and further and further wherever you can think that there might be people whom you can love letting them all become part of your heart, part of your life.
to now put your attention back on yourself. And feel the inner joy and contentment that comes from loving and giving. Fill yourself with that joy and contentment and surround yourself with the peacefulness that results from that. Feeling at ease, safe and secure. beings have love in their hearts. And the Buddha said one ha- gets many benefits from loving-kindness and the first three that one gets is one goes to sleep happily one dreams no evil dreams and one wakes happily so I hope you will all go to sleep happily have no evil dreams and wake happily at 5.30 tomorrow morning good night